as I speak, the words would not be my words, but they would be your words. God, that um, we would leave here convicted, challenged, encouraged, and whatever your desire may be, that we would understand more of who you are and what you've done for us and what you're doing for us, what you're going to do for us, God. And we know that um, we are not worthy of coming into your presence alone, but because of Christ, we can come in boldly because of how hospitable our Savior is, God, how welcoming you are. We can come into your presence with our sins forgiven, with the weight of death off of us, the consequences of sin erased, because, God, you are a forgiving Father. Scott, will you speak to us this morning? Let us not leave here the same, but let us leave here different because you're worthy of that, not so that we can brag and become boastful or prideful in the things that have happened in our life, God, but so that we could give you honor and the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Earlier we were singing, um, Our God Can Move the Mountains. And I'm sitting over there thinking, God, why don't you just move those mountains closer to Lovington? That would be great. Then we could all enjoy some cool weather and, and the mountains, the air that you smell from the mountains, that would be awesome. But I don't know that that's what that song is talking about, neither do I know if that's what Scripture really means. Move the mountains for my convenience. Um, but if it would be so, Lord, let thy will be done. So uh, have you ever been miserable? Are you familiar with the word miserable? Let me read it to you wretchedly unhappy or uneasy or uncomfortable or poor or needy or full of misery? Have you ever had a moment in your life where you could look back, or maybe it's currently, that you would say that you are just miserable or you were miserable? Sometimes misery is small compared to other circumstances. Sometimes it's uh, weather-related. Maybe it's hot. And you would say something like, oh, this heat is making my life miserable. Or maybe it's cold. And you would say, oh, this cold is making my life miserable. Or maybe you had bad food from somewhere. And you ate the food and your life became miserable. And you said to yourself, why did I eat what I ate? Maybe you were just sick. Maybe you had a cold or the flu or some other kind of sickness. And you thought to yourself, my life is so miserable at this moment. Or maybe you are poor. Or maybe you're rich and you're miserable in your richness. Or you're miserable in your poorness. Or maybe you're stressed because of things outside of your control. And you would say, oh, the stress and the anxiety that I'm facing at this moment is making my life miserable. Or maybe you're a part of marital bliss. And you would say to yourself, ah, oh, my life is miserable because I am that spouse. Or maybe you're a parent or grandparent and you have a three-year-old and you think to yourself sometimes, life is miserable because of circumstances. Or maybe it's your job. Or maybe it was your job. Or maybe it's your friends. Or maybe it's school or your family. Or maybe you've lost someone and life is just miserable. I feel like maybe most of us have had a moment in our life where we've said, Life is miserable. Maybe it's a drought. 
Maybe it's uh, too much rain. Whatever the case may be, we've had a moment in our life where we've said life is miserable. And we begin to look for a way out of the misery. Think for a second your plan of escape when life became miserable. What were the things that you were looking for to get out of the situation? If it was bad food, what, what were you looking for to help you get out of the stomach issues that you were involved in? Or maybe it was heat. And what did you do to get out of the misery of heat? Crank up the air conditioner, go swimming, something. Or maybe it was the cold. What did you do to get out of that misery? You found a blanket or started a fire or turned up the heat. Whatever the case may be, you look for a, a way of escape from the miserable moment. And our world is full of ways to get out of miserable moments. And oftentimes, we act in desperation. We think that the marriage misery is not worth it. And so we begin looking for a, a way out, a plan. We, we plan an escape route. Or maybe it's, uh, it's your job, and so you begin looking for a new job, thinking that satisfaction and fulfillment will come with the new job. Maybe the same with the new spouse that you're looking for. Or maybe you just ask the doctor for the good stuff. Can you just give me the good stuff to get out of this misery? If I have the good stuff, whatever it may be, then I can get out of this misery that I'm in. We try and find things that will help us cover up the misery that we're in. Drinks. Drugs, donuts, food, whatever it is, entertainment, shopping, sleep. I mean, you know the best way to keep a dream going, right? Continue sleeping. That's the only way to keep a dream going, right? We find ourselves in miserable, miserable moments, and we're looking for what the best medicine is to get us out of that miserable moment. And how many of you have ever thought, as you're involved in misery, I think the best medicine is hospitality. What if I just invited some friends over? Like, I, I have this miserable moment going on. What if I just threw a party? Let's just uh, have a, a time where we invite people over and, and hang out. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think that the best medicine is hospitality. What I want us to begin thinking about this morning, as we're continuing on through our uh, series here, I want to refocus in on hospitality again. We talked about the first Sunday we spoke on this, how hospitable our Savior is. That he chose, though he is self-sufficient, he chose to live in community with other people. Last week, Caden did a great job preaching on the doctrine of sin and the weight of it. And understand, understanding who God is and who we are. And in that, seeing how hospitable our Savior really is because of what he's done for us and what he's doing for us. And so this morning, I want us to focus in on the fact that we do have a hospitable Savior. And because of that, we need to do something with it. I was reminding my, I was telling my dad a story, a friend of mine, his name's Chris, and uh, he always says a certain line when he gets information. Well, now I have the information, I've got to decide what I'm going to do with it. He uses that phrase in every situation as he's at Walmart and the gentleman or the lady is standing there with the cardboard sign and he reads the sign of what's going on in this person's life. And he says to himself, I see the information, now I have to decide what I'm going to do with it. So we understand that our Savior is hospitable. We understand what he's done with our sin and who he is. Now we have to decide what we're going to do with that. 
So Moses was faced with some misery. He was lifting his hands up, and when his hands went up in Exodus chapter 17, the battle was winning. They were fighting, and, and, and Joshua was winning this battle. But every time he put his hands down, misery was happening, and he put his hands down. His arms were getting tired from holding them up. They began losing the battle. And so two gentlemen said, we will help you. We'll walk alongside of you. We'll show some hospitality to your arms and lift them up and hold them for you. When Job was in a miserable, miserable state, he sat down with his wife and with his friends and they chatted about deep spiritual things and thought about who God is and what God is doing in their life and how they can respond to the misery that's happening in their life. When the disciples were faced with aloneness because their Savior had they felt like had left them, what did they do? They met together in a room. They began thinking about, what has he told us? And they remembered the words of Jesus. And they made choices to go and serve the kingdom instead of themselves. In the moment of misery, misery when they felt miserable, they said, let's meet together. Let's live in community. Let's remind one another who God is, and let's walk together in this journey that he set us out upon. And Christ is in the garden, full of misery, stressed to a moment I don't think any of us have ever been to, stressed so much that he begins to sweat blood. In that moment, he knows something that's truth, that's ancient. He knows that he needs God. He needs to be in relationship with God. And so he says, thy will be done. He says, I want your will to be done in my life, Father. I want to be in right relationship with you because I know that is what is best. And so he begins to show us what hospitality, biblical hospitality, looks like in the face of, in the face of misery. Turn to Titus chapter 3. We'll read these verses together. I want to remind you again of our hospitable Savior so that you can have the information and you can decide what will I do with this information. Titus chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. We'll read seven verses together. Titus 3 verse 1 says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The weight of sin, the doctrine of sin there's uh, as Paul is talking to Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, did you catch this? This good news from our hospitable Savior that he looked upon us with mercy. Read it again, starting in verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. So even the righteous works you've done have not saved you. But according to his own mercy, 
See, see God looked down on us and he sees our misery and sin and he sees how we are unhappy and how we are uneasy and how we are uncomfortable and how this is a wretched life filled with sin and how we are full of misery or full of sin. So he looked down on us and showed mercy to us. He sees us in the state that we are in and decides to be hospitable and give us something that we do not deserve, though we are in desperate need of it. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, so you have this information. You understand what he has done for you. If you've confessed Christ as Lord, then you understand you've, sa- you've been saved not by anything that you've done, but because of the merciful God that we serve, because of his fatherly forgiveness that he's given to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. So you have that information. Now you decide what will you do with this information. How do I represent this how will I be an evangelist, someone sharing the good news of this? How will I live my life and walk this journey being a representation of this? i remind you what we said the first week. His grace is made evident through his hospitality to sinners. He looks upon us. He sees our sin. Yet he decides to be satisfied in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son and the blood that was shed for us. Because he's satisfied in that, he forgives us of our sins. Because of his mercy. So, so see, hospitality is really the gospel being played out in flesh by us being saved by a merciful God and then showing mercy to those who have not yet been saved by a merciful God. We are these represent, representatives. We are part of this ministry of reconciliation that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. See, we once were strangers, as he tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 19. We were once strangers, but because of Christ and his hospitality, he welcomed us into his family. No longer strangers anymore, but those known by the Father forever. And this is the hospitable Savior that we're, that we're serving. And I know it's a repeat, But it's so overwhelming to me that God would, not by any righteous work that I've ever done, or any righteous work that you've ever done, or any righteous work that First Baptist Lovington has ever done in the hundred plus years it's been in in existence, none of those righteous works work for my salvation or your salvation. Only the mercy of God shown through giving up his son are we welcomed into the Father's family, forgiven by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of the Lamb. What a hospitable Savior we serve. And so with that information, we have to decide, if I was a stranger and God showed love to me, how do I walk as one who is loved by this hospitable Savior? Well, I should walk as one who's showing hospitality too. What I want us to, to begin, begin become becoming familiar with is that hospitality really leads to evangelism. What I mean by that is, When we recognize the good news of Jesus Christ and how hospitable he is, we respond to that. And we want him to be Lord of our life. When we understand that drinks and drugs and donuts will never truly satisfy or get us out of the misery that we are in, but we recognize that only Christ can do that, we begin treasuring him. We begin saying things like, how great is our God? How merciful is our Savior? 
How sovereign is our King? How forgiving is our Father? Because we recognize the good news, the great news of Jesus Christ, of our hospitable Savior. So practicing hospitality really puts to flesh the gospel. Begin loving those who are strangers, loving those who have not confessed Christ as Lord. So when Christians, I really believe this, when Christians practice simple hospitality, it changes the world. And the reason why I know that and believe that is because the hospitality of the Savior shown to me has changed me. Has given me a picture of eternity and be able to stay away from and minimize fleeting things and maximize the eternal king, saying this life is not just about me. Though, when I sing words like, we know you can move mountains, flesh rises up and I begin thinking, oh, that mountain sure would do me good if it was closer. And so I have to say, okay, Lord, I know that mountain is not about me. I know it's not about my desires. It's about you being glorified. And so I would try to manipulate a little bit. Lord, be glorified by moving that mountain to Lovington. You will be glorified, I promise. Hospitality, put into practice, puts the gospel into flesh. You get to show people, let me, let, me share, let me share with you why I would love a stranger. Let me share with you why I would eat with tax collectors. Let me share with you why I would be focused on these things that are of eternity rather than focusing on these things that are going away. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. We want to just focus in on our Savior. And I know that He's perfect. And I know that... Um, that you'll probably try and say things like, I'm not Christ, so I shouldn't be doing these things. And my prayer for you is that you would begin maturing in your walk with Christ so that you can be a representative of him to the world and not just to the saved few in this room. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Jesus calls one of his disciples to follow him. And Jesus passed on from there, verse 9, and he saw a man called Matthew, or Levi, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Now maybe for a moment we could think about Matthew, and we would say things like, he works for the IRS, so his life is full of misery. There's no way that he has a, a great, happy uh, you know, life, because he's working for the IRS. He's a tax collector. So because of that, when someone came and offered him a new job, hey, follow me, here's a new job for you. He was like, yes, this is the way out of the misery that I'm, I'm in. And that may be the case for the moment with Matthew. Maybe he had that moment of, of thought. But there's much deeper things going on here. When Christ sees Matthew and calls him to follow him, maybe he sees, because he's God, the full extent of his misery and what sin is doing to him. How he'll never be satisfied in the moment, but he'll only be satisfied in him. And so when he calls out to Matthew, follow me, it's more than just take up a new job or begin being friends with new people or move to a different place, but instead it's follow me because of everything that I am. Because I'm going to take you out of the misery that you're in and place you in the life full that God desires for you so that you can have satisfaction in every moment of life. And then some people 
began to harass Jesus. Verse 10 says this, And Jesus reclined at table in the house of Matthew. Uh, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Those that Matthew knew, those that he had worked with, those that had seen Matthew's life, all of a sudden Matthew changed and was radically changed and began following, left his old life and began a new life following this rabbi, this teacher. And so, so many wanted to know what was going on. Hey, why would Matthew leave the, the great job that he had, that he's making money, stealing money, everything's provided for him, why would he leave that and follow this teacher? It's a different career. It's not even what he's been trained to do. Why would he follow this guy? Let's go find out. They're eating over at Matthew's house. Let's go sit down. Let's hear the story of why Matthew is, is following this Jesus. The same thing applies to us today. I mean, we want to be gospel representatives. We want people to understand why we would follow the one that we follow. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, why do you follow him? Can you answer that? Why do I follow Jesus? And then share that with those around you. Verse 11 says, And when the Pharisees saw this, saw that Jesus was sitting and reclining with tax collectors and sinners, now they said to his disciples, they wouldn't confront Jesus about this. Instead, they just went to his followers and they said, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does the one that's training you in the religious law eat with those that are far from it? Why does the one that you're following, the teacher that you're following, who claims to be a holy man, why is he eating with unholy, impure, unrighteous people? I mean, your, your teacher claims to be a righteous person, but why is he eating with the unrighteous? And the disciples, uh, but when he heard it, Jesus, because he's all hearing also, when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Christ is God in flesh on the earth, and he's still demonstrating these attributes of characteristics of God. You know, the one that we just read in Titus chapter 3, where God saved us by his mercy. He, he looked upon us with mercy and said, I want to save them from the misery that they are in. I want to save them. I want to display them. I want to give them mercy. And Jesus here, speaking to these religious leaders, says what? Go and give mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The Pharisees were uh, really focused in on uh, how to religiously follow and be a righteous person. Christ is saying, mercy is what you should be looking after. Mercy is what you should be striving to do. Not sacrifice, not religious charts and all these things, but instead you should be giving mercy to those who are in misery. Look Look at them with compassion. Give them mercy. Move on to verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He was moved within his belly, actually. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless. See, they were living a life full of misery. They're harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest 
to send out laborers into his harvest. So he looked at the fields, he looked at the people, and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he wanted to grant them mercy. He saw maybe one sheep without the flock. And he looked at the sheep and he said, Oh, this sheep desperately needs a shepherd. He will live a miserable life if he tries to do these things by himself. If he continues to go in this direction, misery will, will soon overtake him. So Christ looks at the good shepherd and says, This sheep needs a shepherd. Bring him into the flock. Let me shepherd him. That's a hospitable savior. That's also disciple making. Shepherding and disciple making kind of go hand in hand. Uh, teaching people in the way that they should go, in the way of righteousness. Showing hospitality to someone because you, you want them to be a disciple of Christ. Leading them, them in the way that the Lord desires for them to go. Not the direction of misery, but instead in the direction of the Savior. Because he, because he's worthy of that. I don't know if you're picking up what I'm putting down at all, but I hope that you are. But in case that you're not, turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is a familiar story to you, I'm sure. It's a story, it's a parable, a story that Jesus teaches and um, teaches with a point. Luke chapter 10, we'll start in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What, what shall I do to live forever? Right? We have people that still want to know that. What kind of oil do I use, essentially, that will help me live forever? What kind of drink do I drink? What kind of vitamins do I take? What will help me live forever? Is there a fountain in Florida that I can drink from that will help me live forever? We have this still. I want eternal life. What should I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? Right? You're a teacher of the law. Surely you've read this. What does the law say? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? And so the lawyer answered, verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So, so this particular religious law keeper, one that has read and is interpreting scripture, has interpreted that if one wants to have eternal life, all they would have to do is love God with everything that they are, and love their neighbor as themselves. That's all it takes. Love God with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself, and you can have eternal life. And verse 28 says, And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Have you ever made yourself miserable because you've added extra things to your life? Maybe let's just speak religiously for a second here, or spiritually. You've added more stuff to the gospel, making it more difficult for even you to be saved, or anyone else for that matter. And you've added and added, well, we have to do this, and 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 we have to do all these things. And if we do it, we've done all these things, and surely, surely, Gary will go to heaven. He's done all those things. Christ makes it simple. 
Love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself and you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So we've got to justify what we're doing here, right? Even in terms of today. We've got to see that we're doing things correctly. So if we were to answer Christ, hey, I want eternal life. How do you interpret the law? How do you interpret the scripture? I would answer things like, uh, if I go to church enough, if I attend Sunday school and worship, if I come on Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, if I come to extra prayer meetings, revivals, camps, mission trips, if I do all those things, then surely I will inherit eternal life. Correct Jesus? Jesus would say no. Uh, here's the thing. Love God with everything you are. Follow him in loving your neighbor as yourself. And so this lawyer has to justify himself. In verse 29, he says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Which is an interesting thought. Because of all those things that he just said, love God with everything that you are, you shall love the God with your heart, with your soul, with your strength, and with your mind. I would think of those things, like I would have questions more about those things than who my neighbor is. Because how do I love God with all my heart when my heart is more deceitful than anything else in the world? And how do I love God with all my soul, which I'm not even really clear on, is my soul in my brain or is in my heart? I'm not clear on that. With all my strength, what if I'm not strong at all? What if I don't have any strength? And with all my mind. But have you met some people that don't have a clear mind? Maybe that's me. I would think there would be more questions about that rather than questions about who is my neighbor. But even in today's world, we would say, oh, well, what's it come down to? Well, you got to love God and love people. Well, I know who God is, and I definitely am confident and for sure on how to love God. Okay, well then, love your neighbor. Still, the question rises. Yeah, but who is my, but who is my neighbor? And so Jesus replied with a great story. Have you heard it before? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead, or if you're an optimist, half alive. Verse 31, Now by chance a priest who was going down that road, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Come on, Jesus, surely the priest would have stopped. He's religious. And so likewise, a Levite, come on, a worship leader, surely he's going to stop. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But then this rotten old Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He probably looked upon this beaten man as Christ looked upon the crowds, harassed, helpless, full of misery, in need of a shepherd, in need of compassion, and in need of mercy. Verse 34, he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his, his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The problem with hospitality is it takes time, and it takes resources. And many of us can justify our way out of that all the time. Every moment we justify, we justify our way out of showing hospitality. Because it takes time and it takes resources. And I don't have the time and I don't want to share my resources. 
Verse 35, And the next day he took out two denarii, more resources, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. More resources and more time. Follow-up, actually. In verse 36, Jesus just asked the question, So which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Which one would you answer? I know you know the story already, probably. But in your context today, which of those three are you like, and which of those three are your neighbors like? And he said, the man answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Go and show mercy to those who are miserable, to those who are hurting, to those who are harassed, to those who are helpless, to those who are like sheep without a shepherd. Go and show mercy. I don't think it's any simpler than that. Stated simply. Walking it is the difficult moment. Walking it is the difficult moment. So with the information that you have about a hospitable Savior, how do you respond to that? Do you look at it and say, man, our Savior is incredible. He's sovereign. He's merciful. We list a whole bunch of great religious words to to really describe him. And then we walk away and we never show mercy like Christ shows mercy. The call on your life and my life as one who's confessed Christ as Lord in whatever setting you're a part of, whatever age and generation you're a part of, if you've confessed Christ as Lord, we should be like this, this person here. Loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbor, showing them mercy whenever whenever Christ leads us to do that. The hospitable Savior we have is worthy of your entire life, your entire time, and all your resources, the ones you feel that you've gathered to yourself and the ones that you claim Christ has given you. All those resources and all that time should be used for Christ and his kingdom. Showing mercy to those who are miserable. Showing mercy to those who are in need of compassion. Showing mercy to those who are helpless and harassed. The gospel put into flesh is when those sinners who have been shown hospitality by our Savior begin to show hospitality to those in need of our Savior. Let's pray. God, how incredible you are, and I only know a little bit about you. But I've been convinced by the small things that I know about you that I'm desperately in need of you more and more every day. And as I walk, Lord, I'm aware of my sin and I'm a reminder of my Savior and how you've welcomed me back into your arms because of the blood of the Lamb. So God, will you please help us through your Holy Spirit to walk in a way that brings glory to you, not for our own sake, so that we can boast in that, 
because you are worthy of that, God. As Christ told this religious leader many years ago that we should respond to our neighbors with mercy, God, we help us to walk in that. For those of us in this room this morning, God, who have been showed mercy by you, who have confessed Christ as Lord, we help us to be the ambassadors, representatives of that mercy to the people that we come in contact with this week. So that others may be able to begin to grow in relationship with you. They may be able to confess Christ as Lord. So God, all this morning is for you. As we respond, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We'll sing a song of invitation. Christ's calling you uh, for you to respond for him, for his glory, so that he may be uh, so that he may be lifted up to the nation of Lovington this week as you represent him because of how merciful he is. So we represent that mercy. So while you stand, we'll sing together and respond faithfully to God. Jesus.